When we are really in tune, when we have tuned ourselves to life, mm. to the divine, mm-hmm. then life can happen through us. Yes. It's even in our language we say, oh, she really lit up when she talked about that. I think about that. Yeah. When someone lights up, you see it in them. You yeah. see them as soul, but then you are also lit up just experiencing that. Welcome to the first episode of 20 Minutes with Bronwyn for the year of our Lord 2022. Listen, the past two Januaries have been, I don't know, sober, more sobering than most Januaries. Because in the before times, January meant gym memberships and optimism and all of the trappings of a brand new start of a new year. But the past two Januaries have felt more tentative. I mean, we're coming to 2022 tender, tender is the night, because maybe like me, you spent the holidays with Omicron. Four out of five of the people in my house got it, and we had to cancel our travel plans and our Christmas plans and all the plans just when we were feeling safe with our boosters and everybody vaccinated. Life had other plans, or maybe you somehow avoided COVID, but are still carrying the weight of all the uncertainty and the burnout that has marked the past two years. Well, my friend, this episode is calling out to you from a place of possibility, of hope. This episode is a call straight to your soul because you're about to meet the marvelous Scott Shute. Scott is the former head of mindfulness and compassion at LinkedIn And he has since left that position at LinkedIn to focus full time on helping companies and individuals become more conscious and compassionate through his speaking engagements, workshops, and executive coaching. He helps people build their own self-awareness through meditations and retreat and with his book. Oh, it's so good. It's called Full Body Yes, Change Your Work and your world from the inside out. And after two years of what feels like constant no's, the idea of a full body yes is just compelling to me. And I cannot wait for you to meet Scott and hear more about this concept and this practice. You can find him at scottshute, that's S-H-U-T-E dot com. And of course on LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Scott Shoot. And at the end of today's show, I'll share some additional resources that you're going to love as well. But enough with the preamble. Let's dive in. I want to talk about full body yes. Mm. And specifically, I want you to kick this off by describing what your definition of a full body yes is. Oh, you know, when you just know, like when I met my wife, we met on a Friday night and we had our first date on a Tuesday after that and our second date on a Thursday. And on Friday morning, a week after I had met her, not even a full week, I went in and I told my friends that I was going to marry her. Mm. That's the full body. Yes. That's amazing. And how long have you been married now? 27 years. Wow. Yeah. Now to deconstruct it a little bit, it's when all of the parts of you just come together. Mm. And when you're really operating at that deepest part of you, which I would call soul, mm. like my mental model for how the world works and like every other model, it's you know useful, but probably wrong, is that I am soul and I have this physical body mm-hmm. and I have mind and I have emotions, but really at the deepest level, I'm soul. 
And so the full body yes is when we're operating from that perspective mm. and everything else comes in line. It's like when the mind is calmed down and the emotions are calmed down and the body's calmed down and you're operating from that perspective of soul. Like you're just a better version of yourself. Amen. And you just know. Yeah. And when you just know, there's no more chatter in the mind. Like, no, no, I got this. Yeah. I know exactly what to do now. Now, what's interesting about that is I think the ego can make a big, resounding, noisy gong sound, making you think you've got a yes. Totally. How do you know when it's the ego getting excited that somebody is looking at you like you're a god versus the soul saying, no, she's your life partner? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. This is so hard. So let's be real. Like, this is hard. And for me, I still get it wrong. I think it's a lifetime of practice, mm. of listening listening to that deepest part of ourselves and going, really, is this, is this what I want? I'll give you an example. So a number of years ago, I was in an operations role. I was the VP of global customer operations at LinkedIn. And I'd been in my role for, I don't know, four years or so. And a recruiter had called and it had been four years. So I, I was just checking, you know, and she was really good at her job. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, oh, I've got this role. It's a COO role, chief operating officer role. And it's blah, 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 as she started describing it. And my ego was like, boom, ding, ding. <laughs> yeah. Because COO roles are hard to come by. Mm. And for a person with my experience, I don't always fit. But yeah. this was a perfect fit. And they wanted me. Like, they were like, dude, you're the first person I called. You're the only person I want. Blah, 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 blah. She's really good. Mm-hmm. Amen. But as I backed up and I thought about it, I'm like, oh, really? It's in a different state. It's in a place I don't want to live. The industry is not exactly like I wouldn't have chosen it. Mm. And okay, my daughter had just started high school and I'm really going to uproot her and move her to this new place. And I'm realizing this and my ego's like, ah, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm telling her no. And she says, whoa, 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 whoa. But look, before you say no, consider this. I'm recruiting from the best of the best, like the Googles and the Facebooks and the, this, this is the who's who from the Valley. And before you say no, this is a unicorn on a rocket ship. Like it's blah, blah, blah. All the words. Yes. All the buzzwords. And she's like, and think about this over the weekend and then I'll call you again. Would you do it for life-changing money? Oh, shit. And I'm like, <laughs> damn. There it is, right? There it is. <gasps> and this is the tear that we face every day. It's like the ego's like, seriously? Life-changing money. That's my favorite phrase ever. Yeah. And <laughs> and the title and the money and all the stuff that comes with it. Your ego's like, Bang! but the rest of me is like, wait, what? This is not what we want to do. And so, uh, you know, I didn't do that. Oh. But oftentimes I have in yeah. my life taken that left or right turn because of ego. Yeah. And I yeah. think it really requires some serious discipline to go deeper and go, is this really serving me? Yeah. And I think that's at the foundation of your work, your life's work that you're doing right now is teaching people practices for strengthening that stillness muscle, that soul muscle. What do you say? And I have some very specific questions on some of the framework that you talk about in the book, but what do you tell people who are super busy They got a bunch of kids at home. They got a full-time job. They're going a million miles an hour. They can barely deal with how crazy their lives are. How do you 
create space <laughs> in that schedule for stillness. Sure. Because the only way you can have a full body yes is if you know what your full body feels like. Exactly. And most of us aren't even freaking in our bodies. We're so <laughs> jacked up in our minds. That's right. We've got our foot on the gas. We're drinking Red Bulls and we're going to meal. And we're proud of it. Yeah. We oh. celebrate it. Although 18 months in, people are like, we're starting to figure this, this out. not to say. Well, it starts with the story. So it, there's an old, I don't even know what tradition this is from, but a student goes to the teacher. He's like, hey, teacher, how much should I be meditating? And the, this is, you know, old story. So the, the teacher says, oh, you know, about an hour. But hey, look, if you're really busy and you're stressed out and you don't have time for this and you got other things to do, then it should be about two hours. <laughs> and in our modern lives, you don't need to do this for two hours, you know, yeah. 20 minutes, even five minutes, even one minute is mm-hmm, fine. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about how. So first, it starts with intention. It starts with this idea that we need to, because if we don't even know that we need to, we, we're never going to take a break. And so sometimes life forces us into this. So I think that this pandemic has been a gift. All right. So maybe not a gift physically, maybe not financially for some of us, maybe not emotionally, but spiritually, it's been a gift because it's caused us to stop and slow down and reevaluate what's really important. The people at work are saying, do I really want to work like this now that I haven't had to commute an hour each way every day? And it might, am I really going to go back to that? Yeah. And so it's just like having, you know, your phone taken away for a weekend. You realize, oh, wow, I'd don't really need this. In fact, it's not really serving me sometimes Mm -hmm. or a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So it starts with this intention. And once Mm -hmm. we have that intention, once we feel it, when we feel that, then we'll make space. Mm -hmm. Look, everybody's different. Yeah. But for me, what really works for me is to get up first thing in the morning and I've essentially traded commuting time for meditating time. Wow. So I get up at the same time and I don't have to commute. So what I do, we live here in California. I go up in my backyard at 630, kind of rain or shine. I have built in weather stuff going on and I just do my thing. Wait a second. This I find very fascinating. What do you mean you have weather stuff? Like, do you have your cozy clothes for meditating and then your hot weather clothes? Like, tell me what it's like. (laughs) We're at 630 in Scott Sheets' backyard. What are we going to see? Yeah. Well, depends on the season. So (laughs) summer's nice. You know, I'm out there with my flip-flops. I have a jacket I wear. I have my beanie. Mm -hmm. And as it gets colder, I have a little heater that I turn on. I have my ski pants. I literally put my ski pants on and my winter coat because there's something powerful for me, something powerful about same time, same place every day. Oh my God. I find this very inspiring. Yeah. I really do. (laughs) Because time, I think has memory and space has energy. And so I'm in my same space and it's different. You probably have like, if you're at your computer at home and you're doing your thing, you're locked in and something else happens and there's a context shift, like your kids come to talk to you. Yeah. It feels a little funky. Because like, they're in I'm, the wrong space. Yeah, you're in my, this is where I do my work. <gasps> oh my God, that's true. So my wife will come in and talk to me and we have a little couch that's next. To, I will get out of my chair and sit on the floor and I will stretch while I talk to her because I want to create a different space. Oh my God. And I want, I want me to be in a different space. That genius. That really is genius. And there's so many things I want to build on that. I noticed during the past 18 months, my memory of what happens in meetings and conversations and talks that I give and coaching sessions was getting foggy. And it was because 
every conversation was happening in the precise same yes. place. Yes. And so much of my memory drew upon place and space and time. Yes. I would be in that office with that executive or in this room with this crew. Yes. And very few things, deep things happened over Zoom. Yep. So I went and I bought these amazing different colored notebooks because I had to create that variation yes. in space. Yes. And like the client I'm meeting with the two has a bright yellow notebook and it just, <laughs> that right. is so powerful. So one more question about just technique, selfishly sure. speaking. When you go out and meditate, are you in your, let's say it's the dead of winter, you're in your snow pants, you've got your beanie, <laughs> I'm so into this. Are you on like a yoga mat out there? No, I have, a, chair? I have a chair. I have a, just a, I don't know what you call it, an outdoor chair with cushions. It's cozy and comfy. Yeah, it's cozy and comfy. So you're not in Lotus Pretzel no, Up. I've never done Lotus. I've always used a chair. Oh my God. That is so freeing to hear. Yeah. Okay. So you go out there, you sit in your comfy chair. Is there a candle lit? Is there incense? Is there hot water in your hand? Uh, No, no. Scott just goes out there and sits. I'm still waking up, man. I'm just like, I don't know. That's amazing. It's the first thing I do. (gasps) Okay. So how long do you sit out there for? Okay. So this is not a competition and I I don't want to, I don't want to like, you start small, but uh, I am like, 30 to 45 minutes. And that's the most I've ever done in my whole life. Wow. This is the beauty of pandemic. Right. Like, because before that, I felt like I didn't have time or I was trying to squeeze it in. But now I've made the time. Oh my God. I think that's so interesting. Okay. So you're sitting out there. What is your technique? Are you just doing breath work for 45 minutes? Tell me what you do. Sure. So my primary practice is I use a mantra. I use the word hue. Like long and drawn out. Like some people use ohm, I use the word hue. It's and a, hue means? It's a charged word that is another name for the divine. Oh. But it's also the sound of the divine. And people have been singing in different traditions for a long time. Egyptians and Sufis and others. The, the path I follow, it's our primary practice. But you can find it like if you do it in your living room, your refrigerator You'll hear the little hum or the little hue of your refrigerator. Oh my God. It's in the sound of the bees. It's everywhere. That's amazing. So I think of it like a tuning fork for soul. Yes. I'm getting out of the mind. I'm getting out of emotions. It's a tuning fork for soul. I want to experience my life from soul's perspective. And so I do that for... I don't know, 10, 15, 20 minutes. And are your neighbors like, there's Scott hewing it up back there? (laughs) Maybe. I don't think they could see me. I would have tucked away in my But can they hear you? No, I'm quiet. So give me, is it like, is it like. (laughs) Okay, let's do it. That's great. (gasps) And it's calming. If you think about physiologically, you're taking these long, deep breaths. Yeah. And because you're focused on the word, your mind tends to, it's not thinking about as much because your mind is focused on singing the word. Yeah, yes. And the resonance, there's something really powerful and calming about the resonance, just the vibration. Yes. And all of that works physically, but then there's something deeper that, this is why I like it. Like it's, for me, it's a spiritual practice. It's yeah, something yeah, deeper. Yeah. So then after, let's call it 15 minutes of that, mm-hmm. then I do a series of like, Honestly, it's kind of whatever's going on with me. I might do some affirmations. Oh yeah, I love affirmations. I might do affirmations. Mm -hmm. I might do some visualizations where I'm creating something. So as an example, I wrote this book. And so I imagine the book kind of floating out into the world and people reading it and connecting with these readers. I might Mm -hmm. visualize that. Mm. Or if I'm struggling with something, a decision or a relationship issue, 
I might visualize something and I have a thousand techniques I use, but something to improve that situation. Mm -hmm. And so the difference between my practice and I think a lot of practices and maybe why people get stuck sometimes is I'm not just being quiet and breathing, like it's active. And so for me, this is a, a movement from mindfulness to what I would really call soulfulness. And manifesting. And manifesting, yeah. So interestingly, I heard about this concept. You've probably heard about it before, but this concept of sympathetic resonance Mm. where like the tuning fork is in the tune of C and anything around that is in the tune of C is going to start. Like I used to do a lot more chanting in my meditation Uh practice Uh because I was doing Kundalini yoga and I was chanting one morning and my guitar started humming at me. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh my God. And then I asked a music teacher and she's like, yeah, it's sympathetic resonance. And I have this cockamamie belief that when we tune up the yeah. way you're talking about yeah. and then we visualize, yeah. I think the universe is like, oh, I got it. Let me bring some people that oh. vibe with this. This you're describing is the whole point of the book. Here's my model for how we move in relation as we grow. Usually we're thinking about me, me, me. We think we're a victim and life is just happening to us. Yeah. And then we wake up, we take some classes, we read some books and we realize, wow, what if I change this vibe to life is happening for me? Because if we think about all the hard things that have ever happened to us, you know, that time that blah, blah, blah happened in high school, I can look back and go, I don't want you to take that away from me because I grew so much because of it. Oh, wow. Did that happen for me? Usually Mm. it's like, oh, what a coincidence. I've grown from that. Like, really? Wow. Another fucking growth opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. But when we are really in tune, when we have tuned ourselves to life, Mm. to the divine, Mm -hmm. then life can happen through us. Yes. And here's the thing, like, it's even in our language, we say, oh, she really lit up when she talked about that. I think about that. Yeah. When someone lights up, you see it in them. You see them as soul, but then you are also lit up just experiencing that. And it's like you're saying your guitar is like, I want some of this. (laughs) You're right. And so it might be metaphysical. It might just be cause and effect. We respond to other people responding. And I feel like it's sympathetic resonance, I think also works in the negative sense, which is what social media and Facebook and the outrage culture that we're in right now. Exactly. There is this hideous freaking note that is ringing around the world that is the note of outrage and the note of hatred and othering people. But we can use it in the positive. Exactly. And do a whole different jam with it. Exactly. Okay, so I want to go deeper into some of the things that I thought were most powerful about the book. Things that I'm still grappling with. And of course, we'll be grappling with this for the rest of our human lives. We're all works in progress. Exactly. I loved this question. You said to get to that full body, yes, to get to that place of soulfulness, Mm. we need to examine. And let me get this quote right. We need to understand the external systems Mm. that drive us. Yes. What do you mean by that? I think that is so interesting. Well, when we think about any decision you make and what are the influences outside of you? So back to my example of taking the COO role, ego's like, and it's because, oh, what will all my friends say about, what will my parents say about me if I have this title? Oh, the parents. Yes. The parents parents are big. So the parents are an external system. Family is an external system. Society is an external system. What are others going to blah, blah, blah. Those are all external systems. Got it. What will the neighbors think? Yeah. The internal systems are all about my nervous system, Mm. my body. But the external systems, we are driven like crazy 
by these external things. That's so interesting. I think the system that I was really choking on a little bit as I was doing this exercise internally, and I think this is probably a function of being a woman and I cut my teeth in tech PR. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was in the startup world and tech space, first half of my career, three quarters of my career. And it was always, I was one of the few women in the room and the PR person is always a woman, but I never felt like I was taken seriously as a human. Mm -hmm. I was just the PR girl. And that system of constantly wanting to be taken seriously, that's a very dangerous reason to make business decisions in my current world. Sure. That's not actually what's going to help me or my audience. Right. What's going to help me or my audience is putting out content that helps them. Right. It's not about me being taken seriously. Right. I have to assume that people are taking me seriously <laughs> at this point, but there's that residue That's right. that follows me. And when I make business decisions around, well, if I do this and I earn that, yeah. then they'll then take, they'll me, take seriously. me seriously. First of all, nobody's thinking about me at all, period. <laughs> all those people are like, what will they think? They're not fucking thinking yeah. about you. Think about you as a teenager. Yes. When we were 15, we all, oh my God, what is everybody going to think? And how do I look? Like, the truth is no one's looking at you. No, they're all worrying about their own freaking <laughs> selves. Yeah, nobody cares. Right. But still, those things follow us into adulthood and we're so latched onto it mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we're just sometimes frozen by mm-hmm. all these what. Is everybody else going to think? A hundred percent. We're so afraid of being embarrassed or humiliated. But the juicier question is the internal systems. Mm. Is that a space where we get to create? What are the systems I sure. want to drive me? Or is it intrinsic? Well, it's some physical. So the physical systems are like your fight or flight, your nervous responses, right? Yeah. This constant tension between fight or flight and rest and digest. Yes. Only one is on at a time and we get to choose and trying to find a nice balance to get things done. That's one physical system. And that's a non-negotiable. That's non-negotiable. That's in the operating system. Yeah, it's in the operating system. We can learn how to control it. Yeah. We can learn how to mitigate it, but it's there. And that's millions of years of evolution has created that. So in other words, it's going to take some time to unwind that auto response systems. Yeah. That's one. And then because of that same world, our amygdalas are constantly scanning our lives for danger. And this turns on the fight or flight. And the amygdala is like the early warning system. Except the amygdala has an itchy trigger finger. It sure does. Right. In the old days, it's like, oh, hey, there's a saber toothed tiger. You should run. And it will turn on. Your body is like flood you with the stress hormones so you can run yeah. really fast or yeah. move away. Yeah. But now our amygdalas are triggering us. It's like, oh, somebody's knocking at the door. Oh my God. That sends me into a tizzy when somebody's not. I'm like, who the hell is at my door? Right. <gasps> it's right. a pandemic. Right. Don't or, come to my house. Or my cousin said this about me. Or our yes. kids are arguing in the next room while we're on a Zoom call. Ting! Yeah. All of those things trigger, but it really takes time. In the same way, our minds are like that as well. We are focusing and our amygdalas are looking for that thing that's going to kill us. But now it's the email that we get. Yeah. It's all of these things. And even about our own selves, Mm. we start to look at all the things that are wrong with us. I call it pothole management. Oh my God. There can be a a thousand miles of perfect, perfect road. And then there's one pothole. But where do we spend almost 100% of our time? is on the one pothole, not on the 999.9 miles of perfect road. It's so true. You get a performance review. It's 
performance review season for some people. Mm-hmm. And you can get five pages of, oh, here's all the awesome things that Scott did this quarter. And then three sentences of, oh, hey, Scott could work on these for next time. But I'll agonize 99% of my time about this review on the three sentences. Yeah. And yeah. try to decode, what did they really mean? And what did, am I going to lose my job? Bah, 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 yeah. Bah, bah, bah. yeah. It's exhausting. It is exhausting. It actually makes me want to bring up a story from your book that I thought was really powerful. And I think it's so emblematic of what so many of us in corporate jobs struggle with. And that is the story of Ronan. Because you talked about feedback and performance reviews, and that story is so common. I hear about it all the time. Tell us the story of Ronan. Sure. So I am in California, and Ronan is in Ireland. Mm -hmm. They're leading a support team that's part of my organization. And all the time when we're on video, Ronan is scowling at me because we haven't spent that much time in person together. I'm like, what is the deal with this guy? So at one point, Ronan wants to be promoted to director. And it's about that time, but I don't think he's quite ready. And the local leadership doesn't think he's quite ready. You know, the country manager, not quite ready. Everybody kind of sees him as a support person, but not really a business leader. And so the only feedback I had for him is, hey, we need to work on your executive presence. And he's like- That amorphous word that people throw around. Exactly. And he's like, well, okay, what does that mean? And I kind of stumble and I have- a little bit of a BS answer and he doesn't push it right then or maybe pushes a little bit and I have more BS answer. And later I was thinking about this conversation because the exact same thing happened to me 20 years earlier. I was a 26-year-old sales guy and my, I didn't even know we were having a performance review. This is how clueless I was. We're meeting and my boss goes, hey, I need more from you. I'm like, what does that mean? It's like, I don't really know, but I need more from you. Okay. How I interpret that in the moment was... You know, I'm like a B plus and A minus. There's always more. So I could get to A plus, of course. Which translates to just working more. Yeah. So I go back to my desk and just try to work harder because I didn't know what it means. Now, it turns out he was about to put me on a performance review. I didn't even know that. Okay. So go back to Ronan. I realized how terrible of a manager I was being in this moment. And I'm like, okay, I got to do better than this. So what does this really mean? But the thing is to get to that hard feedback requires hard conversations. I'm not with him all the time, but the country managers and the other people in Ireland are. So it means I have to sit down with four or five VPs or senior VPs and go, look, I need more from you. (laughs) You are giving me this feedback about Ronan, but it's kind of BS feedback. Either you can give me constructive, actionable feedback, or you will support him going to the next level. You can tell they are having the same reaction too. They're like, we can't put our finger on it. We don't know. We haven't thought about it. Right. And so it requires like, oh, damn. Now they are having that moment. Like I am going to have to get deeper and be really conscious in my interactions. Otherwise, it's just a feeling and nobody can manage off of a feeling. Amen. And so I eventually, through the next six or nine months or 12 months, did two things. One, got really specific feedback for Ronan that I could give him and then he could action. And later he did get promoted to director and then senior director. Mm -hmm. But two is I built my own model then for what does it mean to have executive presence? Because I never wanted to use that phrase again without being able to say, here's exactly what it means. That's right. And for me, it means two things. One is it's being able to think strategically. And I had some things behind that. And two is being able to communicate strategically. And I had some things behind that. That's amazing. You know, it's funny, that phrase, executive presence, I spend my whole life working with people on that. And the people that 
don't have the framework, that don't understand the specifics of what it is or what skills are under that umbrella, they conflate it with this amorphous word likability mm. that we hear in politics. She's not likable. He's not likable. Yeah. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> right. What How do I go fix does it? That, exactly. And yeah. it's like a convenient cop out to really getting crystal clear thinking around what does this mean? So the reason I ask you about that story is number one, I want everybody to hear your definition, your framework and your solution. But also number two, because it was used in the book as an example or maybe I projected this, an example of operationalizing compassion at work. Yeah. Feedback that is yeah. specific, actionable, and measurable yeah. is compassionate That's right. behavior. That's right. Talk about operationalizing compassion at work. Sure. Let me define compassion first. The definition I use is first the capacity, because all of us have the capacity, and some days it's less, and some days it's more. So the capacity for three things. The first is to have awareness of others, the second is to have a mindset of kindness or a mindset of wishing the best for them. Mm. And then the third is courage to take action. Look, we often think, oh, Scott's having a bad day and Bronwyn does something nice for him. That's compassion. Yeah, sure. That's easy to see. That's the baseline. But how does it happen at the company level? How does it happen at the group level? Well, for me, it starts with, you don't have to write a thousand page playbook. You start with these phrases. So as an example, at LinkedIn for a long time, we talked about in as people, like treat people beautifully. Well, then every policy you write, everything that you do, every practice you put in place starts with treat people beautifully. That is so beautiful. And then on the customer side, it starts with our number one value is members first. So here's how you operationalize it. In product review, product review is Shark Tank without the attitude. Mm, interesting. <laughs> so six or eight times a week, product managers are coming to the product executive team and pitching the latest version of what they're doing. Here's the changes we're making and here's the result it's going to have. Oh, and perhaps the result is like, because of these changes, we're going to get 14% more engagement. Mm -hmm. In other words, 14% more clicks. Mm -hmm. And the first question, unless they answer it themselves, the first question is like, okay, that's great, but what's the member experience like? And if the answer is, ooh, well, hey, did I mention it was 14%? <laughs> well, I mean, we're hearing about how Facebook allegedly, yeah. based on all of this that's coming out, could see quite plainly that their platform was making adolescent right. girls sick. Yeah. Psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. And yet they and prioritized yeah. the dollars right. over the children. Right. LinkedIn isn't like that. No. Not that there's teenagers on LinkedIn, but you yeah. know what I mean? Well, it's a different operating. Yeah, fair enough. But it's a different operating principle. Yes. So to finish that thought, yeah. if that doesn't go well, that opening question, the meeting stops and it becomes a discussion about our number one value, which is members first. And I guarantee you that product manager, the next round, that's the first thing they're thinking about. And they don't have to spend 20 minutes getting a lecture on how that went wrong. That's amazing. It happens in sales too. Our head of sales will stand in front of five or 6,000 salespeople at kickoff and say, look, our job is to provide long-term value as salespeople. This is our primary job. So look, don't sell something our customers don't need at the end of the quarter just so you can hit your quota. And this is not how I was taught as a 26-year-old salesperson, but this is how you build a successful business. Mm. This, this whole compassion, operationalizing compassion, not just a do-gooder thing. Actually, the science backs it up. So the folks who wrote Firms of Endearment and mm. later Conscious Capitalism, oh, yeah. they did the research that shows that companies who take care of all of their stakeholders instead of just their shareholders, are more profitable. So meaning, 
If I create a balance between the needs of my shareholders, yes, because we have to stay in business to serve our customers, but also the needs of our employees and the needs of our customers and create balance. These companies are 1400%, 14 times profitable than the S&P average. So why isn't everybody doing this? Because it's there. Well, it's a little bit harder. And because it requires a focus on the long term, not the short term. It's just like for humans, why aren't we all spending 20 minutes a day going inside? In meditation. Because it's harder. Look, it's always easier to eat the chips and salsa versus the broccoli. It's easier to sit on the couch and watch another episode of Netflix than it is to get up and do 20 minutes on the Peloton. That's right. That's In the same way, it's easier for companies to manage like we're still in the agrarian or the industrial age instead of in the information age. That's right. Because companies are just collections of people. Always. Always. Okay. There was a quote that stopped me cold in my tracks in the book, and it is this one. Quote, turns out being fully present is twice as big a factor in our happiness as the activities we do. (laughs) I had to read that like three times because I was like, what? Because my mind is chasing activities. Yeah. Instead of presence, like I have a little sticky note that's like, here are five things you love to do to take Mm -hmm. a break. Because if I don't do those things, I'll just be on Instagram scrolling and that's not really a break. So I'm like, okay, which of these activities do I, does sounds appealing. And what you're telling me is like, it doesn't freaking matter. It's the level of presence. Say more about that. So in other words, I could be doing something I don't like, like washing dishes at the sink. But the science shows that if I'm fully present, while I'm washing dishes at the sink, chances are that I'm happier than if I'm doing one of the hobbies that I love, but while I'm doing my hobby, I'm distracted. Z. I think this is why we love our hobbies so much. Because if I'm mountain biking here in the Santa Cruz mountains and I'm screaming down some single track, you know what I'm not thinking about? Anything else. I am fully present. Or remember that time in college, or for some people last week, you met somebody at a party and by the end, you're totally making out on the couch. <laughs> That never happened to me, Scott, ever. I never kissed a man before Sal. No, I'm just kidding. All the men I made out with in college are like, girl, that's uh-huh. not true. In that moment, the whole world disappeared. Yeah. Except for you and this other person. Okay, there's a lot going on in that particular moment. Yeah. But one of the things that was happening is you were fully present. Yeah, yeah. You were so tapped in and dialed into the other person's energy, vibe, yeah. everything. Yeah. It's so true. I was thinking about, I'm a terrible surfer. I'm like very much beginner. I can catch my own waves, but it's a mad scramble. (laughs) But when I'm surfing, even when I'm not catching waves, even when I'm exhausted because I'm not catching waves, it's still so delicious that time spent. And I remember I went through this massive midlife crisis when I turned 40 and I did jujitsu for like six months. Nice. And I freaking hated that class because I got my ass beat by these dudes every week. And they were like, LOL, I'm going (laughs) to beat you down again. But I would leave that mat feeling something better than happiness. It's like happiness isn't even a good enough word to describe it. Flow and presence is so delicious that I feel like happiness doesn't even scratch what it really feels like. Yeah. That's right. And in my mental model, going back to my mental model, when we are fully present, we are living from the perspective of soul, not the perspective of emotion or mind or body, but soul or all of them together in line. That's the full body. Yes. 
all these clocks, if you imagine these old school clocks and all of their hands are at 12 all at the same time. Ding, ding, ding. Right. It's sympathetic resonance all the way through. Exactly. If someone is listening to this and they are exhausted and they're burned out Hmm. and they don't even have a backyard to put snow pants in. (laughs) (laughs) And they're living in a walk up in the middle of a city where masks are happening and they feel constrained and they feel trapped. What is one small big thing they can do today Mm. to create a full body yes experience or at least create the path to a full body? Yeah, let's try it right now. So just take a deep breath and let it out all the way. And you can put your hand on your heart, on your chest and first Just feel, first just feel your breath, the rise and fall of your hand on your heart. And then you can say, I am perfect just the way I am. And then you can say your name followed by, I love you. So I would say, Scott, I love you. But inwardly, try it now. And yeah, I get it. Let go of that judgment or whatever was holding you back. But continue to say it. And just open up to receiving it as if the person you treasure most in your whole life was saying it to you, as if a child was saying it to you. Just receive it. And as you receive it, let that wave of love roll through you. Say it in your name, followed by I love you. And then smile, a big smile, because this practice should be (laughs) joyful. As soul, we are pure. Taking another deep breath in, letting it all go, and returning here. Oh my God. Magic. 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 Now, how long did that take? That what? 90 seconds. I'm telling you, that's what's so amazing about mindfulness mm. is that you realize that chronological time is just one option, but there's this other kind of time, that Kairos, which is out of time and magic can happen. Okay. I want to end with a quote from Hafiz that is in the book, because this is going to close us out and turn people loose on the world. Quote, like a great starving beast, my body is quivering, fixed on the scent of light. I mean, I've read a lot of Hafiz in my time. I've never heard that quote before. It's awesome, isn't it? Yeah. I think about that all the time. Just that that visual, he does such a good job of this visual body quivering, fixed on the scent of of light. light. Like it's not the kill. It's not the paycheck. It's not the likes on Instagram. It's light. It's soul. Yeah. Well, thank you for being (laughs) quivering in pursuit of light and soul because the book is awesome and you're awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for being here. Mm. How delicious was that meditation? Such an inspiring way to kick off this mysterious new year. And if you want more, if you want to dive deeper into Scott's work, head over to scottshoot.com, S-H-U-T-E. But if you want to meditate with him more, Scott has his own channel on Insight Timer, one of the top meditation apps out there. Just head over to insighttimer.com forward slash Scott, S-C-O-T-T-S. H-U-T-E, Scott Shoot. I continue to meditate imperfectly, my friends, and I invite you to join me this year to do the same. Let's strengthen that stillness muscle. Let's become addicted to listening to our own souls this year. Let's become attuned to that full body, yes. And let us be fixated 
like quivering beasts on the scent of light. Shine on, my friend. We need your light. And Happy New Year. I'll see you next time.